Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Endurance Cartel Podcast. I am your performance and lifestyle coach, Javier Pineda. If you enjoy the content, make sure to tell your friends and head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And please, leave us a review. Want to know when the next episode is coming out? If so, head over to my website at EnduranceCartel.com. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now, let's get down to business. In this week's episode, ESPN announcer Fernando Palomo joins the podcast. We talk about growing up with sports in third world countries, athlete development, Olympics, coaching, and so much more. He has been the voice of EA Sports FIFA video games since 2013. For 20 years, he's worked at ESPN Deportes and ESPN International as host to shows such as SportsCenter, where he announced many important games in past European Nations Cup, now covering events like the World Cup or Olympics or any other major sporting event for that matter. He is the host of a very successful podcast called Nos Ponemos Las Pilas on ESPN Radio Broadcast. All this while being one cool dude who knows his stuff. Hope you enjoy the show. We share a lot of things in common. For instance, we share the same birthday, man. Same country. Throwing ourselves 120% into something we share the fact that we had the same dentist growing up. We do have the same dentist. For those who don't know, my father is an orthodontist. So pretty much, I got to tell you, and I started, I collect a lot of things. I collect a lot of things that people see as, as needless, I guess. I collect numbers from runners at the Olympics. You right? do? The, they're, mm-hmm. they're at my gym. I've never went to the to an Olympic Games as an athlete, mm-hmm. but I have collected two as a journalist coming, just tapping on the back of an athlete saying, hey, dude, I, I I have this crazy thing about collecting numbers. Would you mind if you give me yours? And I've had luck twice. Uh, and, and they both turned around and just gave me their numbers. There's nobody, they were not finalists or anything like that. I just like the numbers and the design of the bib numbers. They could be anybody's. I'm a fanatic the, when it comes to the Olympic rings. And I can see there's an Olympic ring on the back of you, one of the frames that you have. There's one or two or three or four. <laughs> so when I got my first bib number was from a guy that went to the Olympics in LA in 1984. And I've mm-hmm. been on his case for weeks trying to get the number from him. And he finally gave it to me. And the number is made of some sort of polyurethane material that is, mm-hmm. but it was, and it was wrinkly. And I was 12 years old and I thought, okay, how do you unwrinkle something? You mm-hmm. iron it. That was oh, my peanut-sized uh-huh. brain at the time. Not grown any. I just grown to the fact to recognize that I have a peanut-sized brain. So I iron it. What do I do? I burn the number. And uh-huh. first reaction was to grab onto my shirt and bite it. And there went my bracket. So I show up to your dad's office with my brackets hanging out of my mouth <laughs> and mad as hell because I had uh-huh. burned something I've been after for weeks. Uh-huh. And and I was crying and I busted my hand because I hit a, a rock wall on my way over to, to your dad's office because it was walking distance from my house. It was like four uh-huh. blocks from my house. Right. I didn't right. tell my mom. I just ran out the door. I'm going to see. And it was, I remember that one. I think I still have the scars from when I hit that wall too. Was he, was he upset? I might, I must say, I got to give you kudos at 10 years old, looking by yourself to the dentist office. And fixing your bracket. I wasn't 10. I was 12. Okay, 12. <laughs> that took another step. I couldn't forward. do that back in El Salvador in 1980. It was late in 1984. Yeah, it's still a big chunk of responsibility from you, man. Was he upset? I was upset. I think. I don't think. With everybody, I, I, I don't recall. 
I don't. I, re, I remember sitting in the sitting in the waiting room, like of course no appointment. I'm just sitting there in the waiting room, crying my life out because I just ruined. How do I tell this guy that I've been after for weeks that I want to have one of the four numbers that they get for the Olympics, right? And I had it, and he gave it to me like you guys, you take care of this. So I never told the guy that that I burned it, and I asked another athlete for that number, and I still have that other athlete's number, and somewhere in my 10 or 20 boxes of things that people think are needless, mm-hmm. I have the burnt piece of, of I gold. More, I think it's more valuable just having it like that burnt, just the history behind it. I think so. That's the history behind it, that I ruined my bracket <laughs> and I had to go to your dad's office. Get this. I grew up with a lot of Olympic spirit around the house, if you know what I mean, especially in the 1984 Olympics. And that was a time that he had pushed me on swimming nonstop an hour and a half in the morning two and a half hours in the afternoon, six times a week. I was with a group that was just very intense, man. I had all these future Olympians or Pan American Games or Central American Games swimmers that I was in their age group. So I never stood a chance. Every time that I walked towards my lane, my dad would play on full blast the Olympic anthem. I was, of course, lane A, lane one, lane two. Everybody would just look at me like, is that your father? Yeah, it's my dad. Putting the Olympic anthem, embarrassed already before even getting inside the water. And uh, man, it's, swimming never really worked out on my end. <laughs> but it, it served me well and later on with triathlons, discipline, waking up early and all that good stuff I still do. I still wake up at the crack of dawn. Still go train clients at that hour. But it, that taught me a lot of discipline. Was it the same as well for you? When I started around that age, I wanted to be, I wanted to go to the Olympics. Like my dream was to go to to an Olympic Games. I woke up every morning before VCRs were around the house and would tune into our Channel 4, which is the only channel that would show sports in El Salvador Mm -hmm. before even cable came came into existence. And there was this movie producer who has passed away since Bud Grinspan that came his claim to fame were many others i'm sure but to me he was the official film producer of the olympic games he put together all the raw footage from past olympics and told stories with it Hmm. so every morning at at 8 a.m before italian calcio would be on tv I'd be watching this 30 minute long documentaries about the 800 meters, the 100 meters, the decathlon, the high jump, the swimming and personalities around Olympic Games. And I was like, whoa, I really want to be one of those people. I really want to do some of those things. And then that summer of 84, I went to my aunt's house in Miami. And I, the idea was for me to go and visit my aunt and get to spend some time with her, my, my dad's sister. And I, I, tuned on the TV. I knew that the Olympics were going on. I, as soon as clicked on the TV and ABC was on, a whole new world opened up. Mm. I saw Jim McKay opening up the Olympic coverage and, and the stadium and the fanfare, the color, the glare, the balloons, the everything that surrounded the, the stadium, the Olympic mm-hmm. Coliseum, which is majestic in its own sense with the arches and all that. I knew that I wanted to be there. I knew that I wanted to be in the Olympics. I came back from that experience, from having gone through two weeks of just sitting in front of the TV. My, my aunt would go, kid, do you do anything else but just sit in front of the television screen? And I go, I can go out and swim if you want, but if you bring the TV outside the pool, that'd be great. So she took an extension cord, brought the TV out to the pool. Because she wanted me out of the house for some reason. My other uncle, my, one of my dad's brothers, 
came over and, and he gave me 20 bucks. He goes, that's for you to buy some chocolate. You know what I did with that? Levi's had a, produced a for sale for public selling, or what do you call it, or for the public, a replica of the uniform that the United States team used to march into the opening ceremonies. There went 1999. So my 20 bucks for chocolate for spent on the river, and I still have that. So I came back to El Salvador and I go, I want to be an Olympian. And, and so what do I want to do? I don't know, because I'm not fast. I'm not strong. I can't jump. I'm 12 and chubby, but I want to be in the Olympics and I want to enjoy the experience. What the hell do I do if I go to the Olympics as a hundred meter runner? That's only 11 seconds if I'm fast. And that goes out, you know, that's done in a flash. I'm going to be a decathlete because they get to spend two days in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. In the Olympic Stadium, they get to spend from morning to evening, the whole day they're in the stadium. Five events the first day, five events the second day, and and they're the athletes, and they're all around. You don't have to be the fastest, the strongest, or jump the highest or the longest. That's what so, they're they're the best athletes in the world. They are the best athletes in the world. I don't care what anybody says; those are the best athletes. They're the, best the most complete athlete in the world. I agree. That's the athlete, and. Mm-hmm. I can, there was one point where I would high jump higher than I could pole vault because the pole vault just, I wasn't athletic. So the javelin stuck. That was the one thing that I've improved on the most and where I could stand out from all the other 10 events. But I did the castling for a good three, four years of my junior life as an athlete. And that developed me. That's and, and they do that in many athletic systems in the world. The Mm -hmm. Cubans, for example, they would bring in young, talented athletes, and they would throw them into the pentathlon and have them jump, run, hurdles, and throw things because that's where, they, that's where you develop your natural abilities. And then you start shining and excelling in, in one or, or two fields, and that's when you specialize. Right? I must say that you started at 12, though. You still could have given yourself a chance. This is the part I have frustrations with in terms of where we come from. Compared here in the U.S., they see the talent. They say, wow, you know what? This kid, we got to just set him aside and take him to another level and evolve him or her to this sport. But over there, we're just so all over the place. And we developed this raw talent. Everybody, I knew a lot of good soccer players, like swimmers growing up in school, and they were never nourished to fulfill what they were meant for because we didn't have the resources in training and all this amazing stuff that the U.S. and other countries have, all including Cuba or even China, that they have an eye for talent. They have an eye to pulling out aside talent and develop them. If you want to play at a high level, you have to train at a high level. Every sport has this specific way of training, but more so when it comes to the individual, you have to be even more specific because everybody's different. For instance, I can do an assessment on you and tell you what needs to be stretched and what needs to be strengthened and then develop you from there. We have done those assessments and you have noticed that my development actually in, in this later part of my life, it still carries the, the, the fingerprints, what I did uh-huh. as 25 years back. Mm-hmm. which is throw a stick round field. Well, you'd practice one of the most ancient Olympic sports there is, javelin throw. And there's so much to it. You have to sprint and use your entire body, not just your arm, to throw the javelin. And you still have the record in El Salvador. Yeah, it's still around, which and doesn't make me feel proud at all because it's not... This is what I'm saying. It's not something that cannot be achieved. It, it was achieved by somebody that came from a, 
a background of, I was just, I was passionate about what I wanted to do, what I wanted to achieve. But you're right. When I was going to practice in El Salvador with the resources that we had, the infrastructure that we practiced in, even the equipment that we would use, the equipment that I started using, I'm kidding you not. El Salvador was host of the 1935 Central American and Caribbean games. Mm -hmm. I threw with those javelins when I was starting. I threw with wooden javelins when wooden javelins would, the only place they would find us, you could find them were museums wow. at best. And I started wow. throwing with those things. And and we threw on out of a pavement, basically. Mm -hmm. The track was not synthetic at all. It was not even cinder. It was after so many repairs done by people that didn't know what they were repairing. They thought they were repairing mm -hmm. the street. They actually put asphalt on the track at some point. Mm -hmm. You train there on a Saturday morning with the heat over there and you, you know, get on the blocks for the start of hurdle practice and your hands would pretty much fry. You would get mm. calluses yeah. on your fingerprints and your thumb because it would, they would fry. Basically, it was brutal. But I thought I did training. I thought I trained. And when I go to school, when I go to college at Texas a and I, I knock on the door of one of the best javelin coaches in, in the world, Juan de la Garza who's from Mexico, had the Mexican national record for a long time, had been Pan American Games medalist and was still competing when when I showed up at his door. And I said, I'm a javelin thrower. I'm, I'm enrolled at school. I'd like to walk on the team and, and practice. And and he brought me in. He showed me what to do, what to start practicing with. And, and then he took me out, throw the javelin. I was, to be honest, I was throwing less than the decathletes were throwing when I came into school. And I had the wow. national junior record in El Salvador. But I wasn't even the sixth best javelin throwing in our in our school on the team. Wow. That was a humbling wow. experience when it all came about. I was like, okay, so what did I do when I was back in El Salvador? All I did was move around without any technical supervision mm -hmm. or even not even I wouldn't say scientific workout program to develop myself as an athlete, mm -hmm. but no knowledge at all of what training was about. No, no knowledge about how uh, a program is developed so that you reach a peak at a certain mm -hmm. point of a season. That I found out when I was going to school. There's a lot of guessing. No knowledge whatsoever. No assessments, no base phase, no specificity, nothing. Just go in there and just start using your Nautilus machines, do leg extensions, and things that are really not provided for your sport or for your purpose or for whatever goal that you want to achieve. A lot of countries are in that sense that there's no scientific sense on how to prepare an athlete when they're young. Like I brought up a Norway has developed a, a system for developing kids a, as athletes in various sports. They don't bring in competition until the brain has developed enough in a kid that they understand what competition is about. Because otherwise, if you start bringing in competition at, a, at an early age, you can lead to frustration and early burnout. Kids would, won't know what competing is about and they won't know how to accept it, how to accept defeat mm -hmm. or even uh, assimilate winning. So they abolish all of that in, in the growing up, growing up process of athletes. That's one approach. The other approach is, is an, the American way of doing things. Everybody needs to do something. And, and you provide the resources. and But then there's another key factor in there, that there's not a state-sponsored system. It is just the customs of a society that understands that they need to volunteer their time in order for their kids to develop an athletic ability. And here in comes parents to play. Parents come in right. and, and 
become the coaches of youngsters, mm. girls and boys in various sports without any background behind them. So you can mm -hmm. really ruin a, a little talent if you're not doing it correctly when you're, you're yes, you're giving your time and that is valuable, but uh, is it contradictory to the purpose of what the kid is? I've spoken to a lot of coaches in the past about the situation and they are so frustrated. They seem to be so on edge when parents take or want to take control of how they are coaching their kids. In the end, the ones that lose are the kids because they're not being coached and the coaches cannot coach them as they would. The one that ends up losing is their kids because they don't get coached adequately. Not that my case was a good example, but I, my parents never came to practice to, to tell the coach what to do around me. me you know, me my parents never came to, and, and they never said, do this or do that or treat them this way or treat them that way. And to be fair, I would, with what we know now, I would think that a, I, I heard things in practice from coaches that I would not hear from my parents. Mm -hmm. I would you consider that verbal abuse? I, I don't. Today, I would. Then, Today? then I took it as something that I needed to go through in order to improve and grow that thick skin that I needed in order to go through that extra rep that I needed to mm -hmm. do. Not in college, but in but this is growing up in, in El Salvador and, mm -hmm. and in maybe 15, 16 years old. And I think that helped. It didn't hurt. Definitely. It definitely didn't hurt. But there is a parental intervention can become a stress factor that is not needed in the development process of an athlete. I agree. I agree. Parents also need to take the spot. They need to know where they belong in the process. If their mm -hmm. kid is a talented kid, they have to maybe as far as their involvement should go is researching where to take their kids in order to develop that talent correctly and in the right spot. And then take a step back and trust, trust I agree. kids and trust who they have placed their kids in which hands they've placed their, placed their kids uh, in. Yet we've heard of examples in gymnastics in particular, where that trust has been violated. No, and then it might lead to second guessing. It should lead to a more profound research process, but mm -hmm. it shouldn't lead to intervening where a parent is not a coach. And then the, the, the age all, I guess, saying, which is still true today and will be true tomorrow as well, is that don't try to live your life through, through your kid's life. Don't try to, to be the Olympic athlete you weren't through your kid. And I feel there's a lot of parents out there still going and just placing all their dreams and aspirations on their kids and their kids grow up to be completely frustrated, not only in sports, but also in their careers because their parents chose something else that they would have chosen otherwise. I was just talking to Manny Huerta, the Olympian on my last episode, how it's sad that many people grow up in careers. They never saw themselves as such, but I liked how Manny put this. I went through hell because I wanted to get to the Olympics no matter what. And he made it twice and he fulfilled his aspirations, even though he was in a major credit card debt. He had so many horrible things happen with his family and yet he made it. He's satisfied that he reached it no matter what. And I admire that. I admire it because that takes a lot of guts. What are your thoughts on it? I think all we all are driven by passion and mm. it's, it's a matter of where our passion will lead us and how far our passion would even lie to us in that process for passionate mm -hmm. about our goal. I was so passionate about going to the Olympics. I never saw myself as slow. I just saw myself as taking a step that will, you know, lead to one point or a one at, at one point think 
I'll be grow. I'll, I'll grow enough as an athlete that at one point I'll just turn to be a fast one. I never saw myself as weak. I just mm -hmm. thought of it as a process towards getting stronger. So even though I never made it to the Olympics, I, I ended up qualifying for the Atlanta 1996 Olympics, but I guess for lack of a better word, mismanagement by the officials in El Salvador kept me from going. Administrative mismanagement, let's put mm -hmm. it like that. So it kept me from, from making the team in, in 96. And God, I could have, at that point, I could have said, okay, I'm done. I've graduated from college that year. I made it to the Olympics. My dream has come true. So I pack my bags and go and, and start a new life without athletics as, as part of. I stuck around athletics because I didn't go to 96. I said to myself, four years ain't that long enough. Ain't that long so I can manage. But then a personal loss, I lost my dad in that process. And, and I figured, okay, I need to start working. So in the middle of those years in preparing to go to Sydney, I said I had an injury, a knee injury. I even I chose to forget about that as the reason for me retiring from the sport. It was basically just trying to be productive. At one point I said, you know what? This dream has been great. Trying to make it to the Olympics is awesome. But I'm gonna I'm gonna have to just call it a day and do something else because I really need to start making some money. So I went back to El Salvador, started working, and the environment does not lead towards helping an athlete develop because nobody understands what being an I guess an, an, a high caliber quote unquote athlete requires. Right. And the culture around the place where I started working was not helpful for me to still do what I did with some sort of discipline. So I would go to practice at 5 a.m., try to get to work at 8 on time. And work didn't start until 10, but they, they still wanted me to be there at 8 o'clock. And I tried to talk to my boss and negotiate it with them and say, listen, if, if we don't start doing anything until 10, can I just come here at 9.30? And that would have led me from going to practice. Instead of going to 5, maybe go at 7 and get a little more, get a, a little bit more sleep and be able to lift weights with more energy in me than just three or four hours of sleep. So I tried to do that for, for a year, but it didn't work. So I just said, you know what, let's, and that might've led to me getting injured as well. I hurt my meniscus and, and the stupid rush everything through. And, and, and I, at that point I said, you know what, I don't even want to rehab anymore with the passion that I would have before, even though I was close to the mark that I needed to, to go to the Olympics in Sydney. So I just, at that point, I just said, there's so many things against me that I don't have the drive anymore. So I just called it a day. Mani said that you have to be incredibly motivated. Motivated. It, I guess I would put it like that. Yeah. He says that it, it was brutal, the whole process. And the second time around, I asked him, was it easier? And he was like, it was even more brutal. I thought it was brutal before. It was even more brutal coming to the second Olympics, just because he was in Puerto Rico having so much less efficient resources than he would in the States in terms of how the associations work, in terms of how the coaching, in sponsorships, because triathlon is not like tennis and javelin throws being an Olympic sport. And I don't think it funds as much to live by. I wouldn't know but how many, but I would say that maybe the top 10 in the world can make a, maybe it's a big, a, you know what it is. And I guess this relates to many countries, not just stars or countries in that side of the economic sphere. It's the fact that when resources lack, right, you need to invest. 
And athletics, it's more, it's a lot like sports. It's a lot like not just track and field, but any sport. It's a lot like agriculture. If we get a people in charge of making big decisions in government to understand that with sports, it's just like with a plant. You can't expect it to produce the day after you plant the seed. So when you plant the seed, you have to wait and be patient. Mm -hmm. But politicians are not patient because they want to be reelected mm -hmm. in the next term. Mm -hmm. So when you give sports, when you put sports in the hands of politicians, don't expect to have immediate or, or long lasting results because mm -hmm. all they would want is go after whatever would provide them immediate results, which are mm -hmm. those established athletes that can go with certain, with a little bit of a push and more resource, improve enough to place themselves in the world stage mm -hmm. and then show the flag of that particular country. And with that victory or great result, pretend that there's a system behind them that created them. No, this system has pretty much re remained the same for decades. Mm -hmm. The system is just the passion of kids, boys and girls mm -hmm. that want to achieve a dream. Yeah. And they go through various hurdles. And, and those that just keep on going, the persistent ones, are the ones that end up making it to a stage in which, with just a little bit of resources added to their preparation, they can truly shine. But there's mm -hmm. no resources at the bottom of that to lead to more persistence mm -hmm. or persistent kids, I if I make my point clear. Yes, I agree. That, yes. But in order to inject resources down there below at the, at the bottom of that pyramid, you need to be patient because the results, you're not going to be able to see them in five or 10 years. It's mm -hmm. going to take longer than that. But to establish that system, the same system that countries like Germany or, or England or Italy or even Brazil or Argentina or somewhat in some ways Colombia or, or even Mexico, not talking about the U.S. or Canada. I'd even say Costa Rica as well. You know why? Because it's a country in Central America that invests the most in education. And mm -hmm. they consider sport as an integral part of a kid's Unless you start investing in sports as an integral part of, of, an, educated, of a, an education system, and you understand that the results will not be seen, until maybe two, two terms past your political term. So therefore, you're not going to gain any political advantage from that investment. Unless we see one of those, we won't see a, an established system that could lead to long-term results. I, I completely agree. And you're, you're absolutely right. All these Scandinavian countries, all these first world countries, they're on autopilot when it comes down to developing an athlete. They know what it takes. Like I said, they pull them aside. They take them up to the next level. They give them state-of-the-art training. Sometimes I forget how spoiled I am in terms of where I work and who I work with. That even here in the States, I French on something that an athlete is doing with his or her trainer. I just, just say to myself, I hope this person doesn't get injured. But then I go back and see what's going on in third world countries. Where do I start? Might as well just wash everything away and start from scratch. Start from implementing a system that would allow kids access to sports on a daily basis. Yes, I agree. That's where you start. We, I was brought up in a, in a system, and it was, so were you, where we have the college student games, where you would participate against other schools and compete against other schools. And that was something you looked forward to. But those have yep. disappeared. And, and, that, and if you, you know, do away with the 
with the seeds, don't expect to have any, to be collecting any fruit at the end of the season. Don't mm-hmm. expect to harvest anything if you do away with the seeds. Let me ask you, as a dad, you have three kids, right? Three kids. And how old is the, the, the oldest one? Oldest one is 17 now. A, this is 2022. We're recording this. So when somebody listens <laughs> to this way down the road, a, he'd grow a lot more. 17, 15, and a, my daughter is 11. They practice sports. They practice sports. Mm-hmm. A, the oldest one was very passionate about a lot of things. Practices. He does soccer. He does plays a little bit of baseball. But soccer is his main thing. He likes to, you know, lift weights, loves sports, but it's, it's not in tune with, with the natural abilities that you need to have to be a good, a good athlete. Then my second one is more into books and studying. And I'm really proud about that. He loves that. He loves exercising. He keeps up with the exercise. And, uh, and the little one, she is nonstop. She goes to from one season to the next, soccer, basketball, and whatever sport they put in. In the middle, she'll do it. Kids here in the States, they are constantly exposed to new activities, new sports, and then they pick and choose what they like and they go from there. And that's the beauty of it here. There's an age in the development of an athlete that they have to know certain things and move a certain way to, for them to go to another level in that sport. And if they want to truly make it in that sport, it's a very small percentage of the population that goes into that field. No, no, percentages are, if you think about the millions of kids that play in whatever country, if you go to Brazil or Argentina, the millions of kids that play soccer and, and only 26 of them get called up to a national team. Imagine. So, right. The it, percentages go against uh, reaching the very top, but you won't be part of the very top percentage if you don't try the u.s national soccer team men's is one of the most diverse and amazing squads the u.s has put together in a long time they they have and they're taking advantage of of the risk-taking factor that most of these kids have had at some point in their careers they said you know what i'm going to take the jump i'm going to cross the the, the the pond and try to develop over there kids like weston mckinney they hear very little of them in the U.S., but then they hit it in Europe. And Pulisic is the same case. A, if you bring any other trade, Taylor Adams, a, mm-hmm. Sergino, this, you didn't even know about him until they realized that they needed to grab him before the Netherlands did. What's your point of view in terms of athlete development on here in the States versus in Europe? Is it more developed in Europe or the U.S. has better development for an athlete or better chances? It's a matter of accessibility. Right. If I think every kid, every boy and girl in the world is born with some sort of talent, it's just a matter of how that the right sport for them becomes accessible. Mm-hmm. And all you need to do is provide them with the opportunity to show their physical talent early and often, not one hour a week of, of PE or health. Or you have to do it daily mm-hmm. and kids would develop into the, they develop a talent into and it's just a matter of providing it and, and again, making it accessible. If I, how would I know if my kids are great at fencing, which they could be, right? But there's no fencing halls around where we live. Down right. in Manhattan has a bunch of, of. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. like that. What if they? What about archery? What if they were good at at, at archery? It's just a matter of providing them the tools to I agree. to try it. And mm-hmm. I think that's what a lot of European cultures have for them going for them that they're so open to mm-hmm. to many sports 
It's not just a ball and a net. It's a lot of other things that are accessible for kids and kids try them out. Don't stick them into a competitive badminton when they're 12. Just but show it to them. Show, right. show them that there's a sport that they can pick up. I'll give you an example. The game of squash. Many people do not know squash because it is a winter sport and it is indoors. Nobody really knows what is this game versus paddle, which is accessible. It's in parks. It's fun. It's easy to play. And it's picking up so much popularity that I'm not surprised if they make their way into the Olympic Games next time around versus squash that's been trying to make a bid as an Olympic sport and it's been denied. And it's a shame, but that's the way it is. Whoever came up with paddle was smart, accessible to everybody inexpensive gear and fun to play. Don't get me wrong. Squash is great sport to play. It's fun to play. It's inexpensive. All the qualities of paddle, but paddle is accessible. Squash isn't. It's picking up steam. I'm telling you, and it's happening for paddle right now that are going right, the right direction. It's not only Spaniards and Argentinians playing it right now. It's a lot of people playing the sport. And once it's going to catch on fire in a good sense, and it's going to Expand because you really don't need that much space to play it. It's exciting. Points happen often. There's a lot mm -hmm. of points. There's a lot of athleticism. It's, a, it's great for TV. You can actually see the ball there. That's one of the things right. that goes wrong or, or goes against squash is that the ball is so hard to follow. True. Unless you play the sport, you can actually see the ball. But people that do not know the sport. Yeah, exactly. It, and you need to catch attention. You need there's. You can't expect everybody to have played it in order to watch it. You have to catch attention. Mm -hmm. And a title is an attention catcher. We're going to have the Formula One here soon. Tickets for it? Any extra? I, I, you know what? I actually got tickets, man. I actually got lucky. I got them just in time when they skyrocketed. Now for a day, I think it's going to almost five grand a day. And this I'll, is I'll not, I'm not saying. Friday practice. I'll take one. I had the three days and I paid. I'm not going to say it, all, but it's, it's impossible to get them now. You, because you're now, not, are you one of those that caught on the sport because of Netflix or, or were you? I was a, movie? I was a big Senna fan and I'm, I still am a big Senna fan. I was said the documentary is one of the best uh, sports documentaries that I've I, seen. In going into what we were talking about, Formula One is, is a sport that can definitely have a before and after. Martin, their history, because what Netflix did to portray the personalities and, and the dynamics of such a close group of individuals, and I'm going to say mm -hmm. a small group of individuals, when you put it, it's 20 drivers, 10 teams, and, 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 and 10, 10 team managers or, or team uh, principals, and there's not that many people to go around. But then when you oh. get to know the personalities and you get to know who's who and who they are when they see each other, it it creates for a lot of drama. And I think we're all suckers for drama. And we, we all know who gets along with who and if they're turning a corner next to each other, what would happen? We knew that happened with Senna and Prost, for example, in the 1990s. You're right. Netflix created the drama, but I personally think that the first season and maybe the second one have been the best. But I think Netflix went a little bit too far with the drama and creating a little bit of rift between the drivers when there wasn't really any. And some drivers have been voicing their opinions. The well, first season is the last race, basically. That's all you wanted to see. My kids are just fanatics of Formula One. And my daughter goes to me the other day, Daddy, I know what I'm going to be when I grow up. I'm going to be a superstar racer. What type of racer? Like a car racer, daddy, like a Formula One racer. I've trained parents that have their kids 
go through the ladder of trying to reach Formula One because there's so many people waiting to become Formula One drivers that it's almost impossible. The chances of you becoming a Formula One driver is, but, but I, I just, I admire her aspirations. I hope it, they can be achieved if I win the lottery, but I don't think <laughs> it, it just cracks a lot of money. It, but it's uh, the reality. The sport itself is now catching on. There's a lot of people that are a, in tune to, to that sport because of TV and just shows you the power of storytelling when it okay. comes to us falling in love with sports. So if we know more about the personalities and we're able to transmit, relate those stories to the viewers, you know, we'll get more sports fans out there. So again, mm -hmm. it's accessibility. If you have more kids watching sports, you're going to end up having more kids playing sports. Yeah. Just show them what's out there. Try to get them off of, of, I'm not against video games and all that. As long as they play the video games that have, that have to do with sport, you're going to see a lot of sports uh, catching on and, and becoming as well. The, the Olympic movement, the IOC, the Olympic committee has opened its arms to embracing esports. As long as there's certain elements of competition in the sports that make a physical activity Uh, it's not just sitting around it. moving your joystick mm -hmm. you know, or, or playing with your controller, but that it involves some sort of, of physical activity while you do it. Then when we're talking about maybe, a, I don't know, there was a talk about be having a huge worldwide bicycle race on a virtual bicycle race. That was good for that. In creating all these events. Strava is an app that you can do a running event. You can do a cycling event. But. It, something bigger, I feel that you're what you're mentioning is it's coming. It's this is a topic for our next uh, conversation. How gamers are actually making so much in prize money than true athletes like tennis athletes. It's just tenfold how much money they're making. When I got into this thing, as being being the voice of, of FIFA, understanding what gamers and the terminology, I didn't even know what a gamer was, but I got <laughs> introduced to it at a very early a point of my relationship with EA and just understanding as well how important it is for them. I was invited one time to a tournament in Chile and, and we called the final live in front of 3,000 fans. And, and you're kidding me. Wow. I was playing along. I'm here playing, trying to play the clown personality, calling a game because it's a video game and stuff. And I was talking a lot. And at, at one point, one of the finalists who ended up w winning the, the game and the tournament, he goes, please take it seriously because it's serious for us. And that was a huge game changer for me. Uh -huh. Then I apologized and, and kept on with my thing with a different view mm -hmm. of it all. They do put hours of practice in it and they do have other elements of coaching that, lo that go along, you know, with tuning out the 3,000 fans that were cheering mm -hmm. for them or against them when they're, you know, playing in their living room all by themselves. That could be a huge factor. And, and when you think about it, it's thousands of dollars that are on the line. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's, a, it's amazing. It's a, it, something I, you and I were not brought up with and definitely did not grow up. We're next generation, man. I mean, <laughs> but it's embracing I, it. A part of the process, too. I embrace it. I don't yeah, go I, against it. I don't combat it or, or criticize it. I just mm. go, I just think that's what we have now. And I understand that, that they, you could have a, a professional game, right. but you have to be, there's one aspect that you would always have to have in order to be successful at whatever it is that you do, be it sitting in your couch playing a video game or actually on the field playing a game. Mm -hmm. If you don't have discipline, you're not going to make it in either or. Yeah. Common denominator here is discipline, consistency. And for the next time, what, if anything, would you like to grow in? What would you like to evolve or practice more in your life? Health or any habit? I have had this thing for 
quite a number of years now, and I think I've improved slowly at it. Just to, for just the fact that I have not removed it from my New Year's resolutions list, and it's just to make a more efficient schedule of my day. Mm. I hate waking up not knowing what's going to happen. Not that I want to have my future predicted. It's not knowing what will happen between, let's say, one and two o'clock. I have to have something that I know I'm doing between one or two o'clock. What am I going to be doing between three and four? What's going to happen between four and five? You know, that throughout my day allows me to understand that, okay, if I have set something to happen between, I could say eight between 8 a.m. and 9 a.m., I'm drinking, having a cup of coffee, reading my emails, and finish some, finishing up my wordle. But that's what I'm doing, and I have to have that. And if I finish everything at 8.30, then I have 30 more minutes to just maybe, I don't know, watch cartoons or play a video game or do something. All right, so let's do this. Next time we meet, let's see how much you've uh, advanced in your goal. Okay? Yeah, we'll bring I'll it up. Out. We'll bring it up and let you know how I did. And that's all for this episode on the Endurance Cartel. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you can, please support the podcast by leaving us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Reviews are really important in helping the show reach more people, so we appreciate any help that you can provide. As always, train smart, guys. I have some great guests lined up for you next week. 